Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm bringing the party to you. I, I don't see how that's a party. <laughs> Everybody and welcome to Black Hole Cinema's Avengers Special podcast. This is the big one. This is the biggest Black Hole Cinema ever. We have a cornucopia of guests today, and I didn't think I'd say that word, but I have. I'm Tony Black, the uh, the host. I've returned after several weeks and leaving uh, the podcast in the capable hands of Mr. Dan Taylor, who's here tonight. Hello, Dan. Hello, hello. And alongside Dan, we have in this massive lineup, sitting right next to me, to my right, Mr. Matt Laven. Hello. He saluted. You even saluted. <laughs> uh, some of those chocolates in the background. Uh, we have in his first podcast since since the old days of uh, Black Hole Cinema, Mr. Lee Crimes. Hello, hello. And also trying to uh, one up him in the bald stakes, but probably not succeeding, is Mr. Pete Gaskell. Why, thank you very much. <laughs> Last but not least, uh, foul-mouthed Black Hole Cinema Beauty, Emma Platt. Sup. <laughs> so, the plan is thus. We are going to talk about all of the 11 Marvel Cinematic Universe films to date. Now, on this podcast before, we have last summer, we did do a Marvel special podcast with uh, a few of the guys, and we talked in general about Marvel. So, we're not necessarily going to talk about the universe as a whole, but I'm sure it will come up in the actual conversations about the films. So, we're going to talk this roster, Iron Man, the first one. We are then going to have The Incredible Hulk, Iron Man 2, Thor, Captain America, the first Avenger, which we have a special guest appearance by Tom East, who couldn't be here today because he's off cosplaying. Um, bless him and uh, <laughs> following that we're then going to have Avengers Assemble the first great one Iron Man 3 Thor the Dark World Captain America the Winter Soldier Guardians of the Galaxy and finally our big final all encompassing review of Avengers Age of Ultron and everyone is going to have specific films they've chosen to watch and are going through so but well, I'm going to kick us off with the first ever 
Marvel Cinematic Universe film Iron Man. What are your buildings, Tom? Are red. Your tears for your long lost boss? Tears of joy. I hate job hunting. Yeah, vacation's over. Welcome home, sir. Put up the scanner, will you? What happened over there? I had my eyes open. I want to protect the people I put in harm's way. Okay, the first Iron Man, which came out in 2008 and was directed by John Favreau, who previously had directed uh, indie films such as Swingers. So he might have been a bit of an off-centre choice for uh, for the first ever Iron Man film. This obviously uh, introduced Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark, the multi-billionaire arms dealer who ends up get and entrepreneur who ends up getting himself into a bit of a pickle in Afghanistan and. It's a bit of a pickle. Oh no! It's a pickle. He has been a bit of a pickle, which is to maybe understate it slightly. <laughs> what a British choice of word. Yeah. I love it. I think that's in the original version, which started yes, normally with a bit of a kerfuffle, <laughs> a bit of a palaver. Yes. So after getting himself into a bit of a pickle, kerfuffle, whichever, he ends up taking on the mantle of Iron Man when he creates himself a metallic suit to uh, break his way out of being captured in Afghanistan and in the end begins his journey towards becoming a superhero and starts to see the error of his ways in terms of being this multi-billionaire crusading guy. So yeah, the first Iron Man which really does, I think, set the stall out. I love this first one. I think this was, I think, still think this is one of the best of all the Marvel cinematic films myself. I think it's just got... Oh, Let him shaking his head. It's got, <laughs> I think it's just got all of those really cool components that make the best kind of Marvel films. It's got a really likeable lead uh, actor playing a, a really likeable character, even though he, yeah, he's a bit of a douche at times, but he's a funny, you know, douche. It's got a good, it's got a good narrative. It's got a good sense of introduction and a good and a good way of introducing the, the tone of the universe and the tone of Tony Stark and Iron Man while still being really exciting and kick-ass. And it's got a, a good villain, I think, even though he's not amazing, but Jeff Daniels... Jeff Daniels? Jeff, Jeff Daniels. Daniels, even. Imagine Jeff Daniels as Monger. Well, why do you mind hate something to Paul Daniels, then? <laughs> <laughs> why, indeed? That's a question you should be asking yourself, Pete, not the rest of us. Yes. Admittedly, I'd watch Paul Daniels as Monger. I've got to be honest. But yes, uh, it's, I think it's just got a really good canvas in which, in which it paints itself on. And it's... It's. I think it's just really a really exciting, really fun film. I, I always enjoy it when I watch it, and I think it really sets the stall out very well. What do we What do we think, guys? Personally, I think it's one of the best origin stories of any hero because it's purely you know wits and skill and intelligence getting him out of his you know his pickle earlier on. I think that's going to become the watchword, isn't it? Breaking out of a pickle. Yes, I'll have to find the point in which every Marvel movie has the pickle. <laughs> oh, just say, oh um, yeah, that's the pickle. Star Lord gets himself into a bit of a pickle, you know. Oh no, them Guardians of the Galaxy causing a right kerfuffle. Black Hole Cinema sponsored by Branston. <laughs> I think it just personally, I think it falls apart in the last twenty minutes or so when you have Jeff Bridges slash Daniels just stomping around, causing mayhem in Vegas. As we'll uh, yeah. cover in the other films, the um, third act monster fight special effects mm. fest is 
a fairly common thing across several of the movies, mm. as it turns out. But the first Iron Man movie, I think, just gets away with everything because the, the, the one thing that they understand better than anything else is the same lesson that the Nolan Batman movies followed. You make these things as grounded as you possibly can and the audience will just buy a lot of what's happening, even if it starts to get a little bit more ridiculous. As I'm sure we'll, we'll cover later on, the further you go from sort of basic, understandable human-level concepts in these things, the harder it is for people to buy into those and stay with them. Whereas one dude in a, in a powered armor suit, which, you know, we're not that far off from having in the real world now in various guises, facing off against another guy in a bigger powered armor suit, not that big of a stretch for people to try and keep up with. And I think that's why so many of the action sequences and big beats of that film work is because the DIY-ness of the early suits that Tony's putting together and everything else that rolls with it just really does make you feel like, oh, well, this is something that could potentially sort of almost happen in the real world as it is right now. And that's what connects you, the audience, to what's going on with the rest of it. Yeah, I think Lee's right. That's the strength of Iron Man, is that he is a human character. Mm. And that's why it's quite difficult and you can feel quite detached uh, with the uh, four films, for example, is that he is a god. He doesn't have this relatability that Tony Stark does. And obviously, Robert Downey Jr. does it so well that you do feel for him. And he does seem to go on a journey across the whole series of films. Um, I watched Iron Man 3 again today. And he sees the error of his ways. He sees the man he was. Um, he sees the man he wants to be. Um, and it's us following him on this journey to be this. Whereas Four is already the son of Odin and, you know, a mighty god and the mighty Four. And you know, obviously the first film, which we'll talk about later, obviously he has his own moment of pickleness. But, uh, <laughs> um, Picosity. Yeah, but but quickly he becomes the mighty four, and quickly you know uh, Steve Rogers becomes Captain America and becomes this superhuman, um, and kind of leaves behind kind of the humanity of him, um, you know the, the human inside of him that has the flaws and stuff that you know makes us all as crap as each other uh, behind, which obviously Tony Stark carries throughout the whole film, even in Age of Ultron, he's the character that um, has these flaws that causes all these pickles <laughs> yeah and I think that's that's the key I think it makes it's a really he's a quite a human character you know and he that, that's that's why he's so likeable and I think that's that's one of the big reasons the film works and I think one thing I like to just add is that the casting as well is quite spot on because I think there's quite a lot of parallels that they've said that between Robert Downey Jr's personal life and Tony Stark mm-hmm. they probably aren't aren't apparent in this film um, but I think Rod, 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 Rodney Rodney <laughs> <laughs> We're just calling him Rod from now on. Yeah, Rodders. Come Dave. <laughs> <laughs> so Rodney Danny Junior. <laughs> Dave Junior. He's settled into Tony Stark, so like it's like he was pretty much born to play Tony Stark, and I can't actually think of anyone else that. Been able to play. Yeah. Start. It's it, what makes uh, not the movie so uncomfortable to watch. I think. Yeah, and, I, and it, of course, then we get the final, the final ending moment, post credits. The first post credit scene, which is something obviously, in many respects, Marvel have have kind of pioneered. 
obviously people were doing it before but uh, Marvel were really the first to really make this a thing so this is the one where we briefly see Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury and asking him to join the Avenger initiative and it's that point I think you realise this is a bigger thing now this mm. is a bigger canvas and that obviously is followed on in the next film in the, in the saga which is The Incredible Hulk I've got a problem there are aspects of my personality that I can't control. See so you shrink. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Bruce, trust me when I tell you I've heard them all. Not this one. I'm one of these people who always finds myself sticking up for films that no one else ever really seems to like. As um, Tony can attest, I've tried to, you know, um, preach my love for films like Mortal Kombat and the original Street Fighter, which everyone else just slates and hates, and I think are just masterpieces in their own incredibly silly way. And The Incredible Hulk is a much better film than I think a lot of people give it credit for being sometimes. It had all the um, the issues and the behind-the-scenes troubles with it, and Edward Norton basically getting stiffed out of the fact that he'd done a significant amount of screenwriting work on it that through various reasons which i think was more union related than anything else he wasn't able to get a proper credit for but the the vision of the character that that puts forward the way it treats the angley movie is basically a, a what if one shot thing and starts starts with its own reinvention of the character it's absolutely spot on it plays it much more like a uh, richard kimball kind of fugitive story which is what the incredible hulk should always be this guy who's got this problem that he's trying to contain in his own time but people won't leave him alone for long enough to do that you know you can fill it up with all your metaphors about um whether it's someone struggling to control their own temper or their own inner demons or just the fact that the world's kind of filled with douchebags who won't leave people alone to just sort their own messes out without feeling like they need to interfere but um again as we were just saying a moment ago for a lot of people the film works quite nicely there's some great action sequences in it it's it's put together in a nice pacey sort of way edward norton is brilliant as the character and when it does devolve into a kind of um monster fight for the last 20 minutes or so as hulk and abomination are slapping each other around harlem then it's that's where perhaps a lot of people lose it and that's the image that some people take away but you know if you look at other films that have ended up with the cgi crap fest and done it appallingly badly the action sequences in hulk they know how to use a character like that, which is basically just a big tank. You know, you have lots of moments of... He's agile, but he's, and he's also very fast, as well as being strong. And there's a good sense of energy to all of... and inventiveness to all of the sequences that, that take place. When he's attacked at the university by the military, he sits and pulls something up to use his shields against the weird Godzilla-style sonic cannon things that they're using at him, rather than just blundering towards them with his arms flailing. And it's it's crediting both the Hulk and Banner as personalities with their own sort of sense of intelligence, their own way of problem solving. That means that the route that they go through across the films is again such a good one. Ruffalo's eventual slight reinvention of the character into the kind of shy nerd works for him, and it, it flows with the, with everything else because Banner himself is going on a journey as he tries to learn how to control the Hulk and how he transforms and what he does with it, but. If you haven't seen it for a while, I would always recommend people to go back and watch The Incredible Hulk because with the benefit of, what is it now, seven, eight years worth of hindsight, you would be surprised at how well it actually stands up 
in the overall pantheon of of Marvel movies. It's for my money, it sort of pushes past the second Iron Man and Thor movies. And even though calling something potentially like the fifth or sixth best Marvel movie just means that there's five even better movies than it, rather than it's just you know five places worse than those other films. But I think as an introduction to the character, as a step up from the concepts that Iron Man was putting down to basically say to audiences, right, these are the kind of concepts we're going to be throwing at you, but we're going to introduce them a little bit at a time, kind of expand the otherworldliness and comic bookness of them a step at a time so you don't get too lost. Hulk is a nice step in the right kind of direction. Once audiences are on board with that kind of idea and that kind of action, future films like Thor and like other things that rolled out after that are a much easier pill for people to swallow. But is it is it better than the first Hulk film, which obviously was this? This was directed by Louis Leterrier, who was mm-hmm. like Transporter and stuff like that. But is this is this better than Ang Lee's Hulk, which was their first run at the Hulk films, or or was it just too different a beast? To pardon, pardon the Without a doubt, it's better. <laughs> you won't like him when he's Ang Lee. That's, yeah. that's the end. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Ang Lee's is just it's just a mess of a film like it's it's absolute can, madness isn't it yeah it is it's just, just insane like... weirdly Ang Lee's movie tries to be more comic book than, than the others there's some really clever <laughs> shots and frames and slides and, and attempts to sort of recreate comic book style panels sliding in on top of itself they tried to make it like I don't know it seems to me like they just tried to make it appeal to like a wide range of people like I don't know it was just too on the I went to see that when I was like 15 and even I was like what the fuck is this shite it was just it was insane and it's just I like Angley yeah. and it was it was it was terrible it was just absolutely terrible not that I like the the second one anymore I thought it was boring as fuck because that's the point that Angley was making quite a kind of thoughtful slightly odd you know very different way of approaching it because he didn't he didn't want to make it just a classic superhero blockbuster he wanted to make something that was a bit different and kind of dipped into the psyche and for some reason had a bit where the hulk fights three giant genetically modified poodles but um obviously the marketing of that yeah i didn't understand that bit either doesn't he fight he fights a doesn't nick nolte turn into a tree at one point or something <laughs> The um, thing about the Ang Lee one, as Lee kind of said, is it was trying to do something different, something comic booky. But th- actually, like Energy compared to both of them, is that it's been done better somewhere else. Um, I think it, Ang Lee's kind of it reminds me a bit of the um, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World kind of style and kind of the more artistic way of doing it. And I said it, so it's been done better elsewhere. And the Incredible Hulk uh, with Edward Norton. It, it's been done more normal, as it were, or what we've become accustomed to in the uh, MCU. But again, it's been done better in Iron Man or in Thor or in Captain America. It's all the same kind of style, and those do it better than perhaps this does. See, the I'm... problem remains that Hulk is a very difficult character to oh, build absolutely, yeah. a movie-length narrative around. Comic books can kind of break down what he's doing into smaller chunks or get away with him fighting more outlandish kinds of villains. Mm-hmm. It, Norton spends so much of the film as Banner rather than as the Hulk and that's what a lot of people it's the same reason people got annoyed with um, the most recent Godzilla movie where I think he's in it for maybe about I think his screen time is less than 10 minutes in, in the whole well, thing but that's <laughs> but that's the, the point of the way I'm referring to Godzilla now that's the point of the way that character's supposed to work he's meant to be this big thing that there's build ups and there's tension before he actually turns up and he's not 
overused. And that's the way that they played Hulk in The Incredible Hulk as well. The way he does finally turn up, but then it's like, oh shit, now things are going to happen. And then, you know, explosions and <coughs> Hulk smash and everything else. Yeah. Same same with the, the few moments that we get the Hulk appearing in the first Avengers movie are the moments that when everyone just kind of collectively clenches and tightens up because you know some bad stuff is going to be going down. Mm. And again, as we saw later on, the um, the brilliant sequence with him in Age of Ultron, which we'll get to later, which was just pure fanboy-pleasing brilliance. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, this one, of course, obviously wraps up in its... Uh, and, uh, yes, I am going to do... And this one's uh, post-credit sequence is just just as a brilliant bridging thing between each film. So, or... He's got, he's got such a smug smile. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy. This, and obviously Incredible Hulk's um, final moment, its post-credit sequence, was Bruce Banner and Tony Stark having a chat in a pub, or a bar, even a pub, it's not Britain, is it? In a bar, and um, Tony talked about the pickle he'd been in and said... It's not Bruce Banner, it's General Ross. Is it? Yeah. You've, you've totally fucked that up. It's General Ross. He talks to General Ross, and General Ross says, "Oh, that's a different suit." And Tony Stark basically goes, "Bitch, please." And he says, "I've heard you had a problem." And then he says something about like the Avengers Initiative, or we're assembling a team. Yes, thanks guys for that because I was completely <laughs> wrong. So it's a good job you're here, and I'm not just doing this on my own, shouting into the void because clearly no one would think I was right. But yes, the Incredible Hulk obviously then uh, leads into. The third uh, Marvel film, which is the se- the first sequel of them all, which is Iron Man 2. This one was bravely taken on by Latham because it's uh, it's divisive, isn't it, to say the least? It is, but I can't see why all the naysayers are saying things wrong about it because it's a perfect film in the Marvel canon. Oh, piss off! <laughs> <laughs> He's just doing this to be controversial, isn't it? Yeah, At least let him sit near the microphone, Tony. Come on. <laughs> It's funny though, I've actually seen a lot of people like it a lot more in the last few days than I have in years. Literally, people like, oh, it's not as bad as that. You know, it's, it's actually like up there in like the top five. I'm like, you're fucking kidding. It's not awful. Let's not go crazy here. <laughs> no, Iron Man 2 is, in terms of our overall narrative of, the, of Phase 1, if you compare it to perhaps a TV show season, this is probably the episode, which I'm saying air quotes. That starts to establish the arc plots that will get carried on for the rest of the season. So, a lot of groundwork's done for the Avengers here. So, you get introduced, you see a lot more of Nick Fury, you get introduced to um, Scarlett Johansson's character, um, but you get that established. Um, I think Colson appears again, and a lot of elements are laid out in this film, which is, on the one hand, it introduces these characters so one time they show up in Avengers you're familiar with them um, on the other hand it does kind of, it does dilute the film somewhat so you've got a story of Mickey Rourke's character who's Whiplash Whiplash um, who has a kind of score to settle with the Stark family and the film kind of loses itself in 
kind of lose itself in trying to establish this greater universe. So, and in in the process, you've got some interesting ideas of um, Tony Stark. Tony Stark's alcoholism. Tony Stark. Tony Stark. <laughs> <laughs> that margarine magnate. <laughs> yeah, but don't spread it round. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it kind of loses focus with this. So you've got this idea of the sins of Tony's father coming back to hunt they ask him to deal with and there's like a scene where he ends up in the suit drunk and basically destroys a nightclub which probably isn't enough because I mean like it's famous I think famous there's like a famous famously that um, Tony Stark was known for his like, alcoholism and there's like storylines that go into quite depth and I think that the Demon in a Bottle it was called yes yeah Demon in a Bottle yeah and I think there's quite a lot that was explored with it, and I don't think that's explored quite a lot. Because I, th- I remember seeing interviews with, um, reading interviews with Rob Downey Jr. saying, yes, he's quite looking forward to seeing that aspect of mm. Tony Stark, but you don't really see it. And I'm still quite un- unsure mm. why they did that. I mean, uh, there's a lot of things that that seem <laughs> to get cut from what they wanted to do with Iron Man 2, and I don't think anyone's ever really sure why. I think the best description for it is five pots in search of a film, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's a bit of everything in there. That, that that is part of the problem, definitely. There's too much going on. There's too many villains. Yeah, and it's as fun as it probably is to see the uh, the shield and show up and uh, and like for Samuel Jackson to basically call keep turning up and t- telling Stark is a moron and then walking out. Mmm. <laughs> <laughs> Samuel Jackson impression. That's all he ever does when he wanders in the screen. Just just turns and goes. Mm. Just a mini orgasm. And then leaves again. You must have heard this story about the first time he ever saw Tom Hiddleston in his Loki outfit when they were on set. I think it was when they were doing the first Avengers or something, and Hiddleston comes out and he's in the full Loki outfit with the helmet with the horns on and everything else and bumps into Samuel L. Jackson and Bless him, because he's British, um, Tom's kind of like, oh, oh, hello, hi, hi, Sam, oh, it's just a r- real pleasure to be uh, working with you today. And Samuel Jackson looks up and down and goes, mmm, if I'd have known it was fancy dress, I'd have bought my costume. <laughs> but do I think it's the worst Marvel film? Yes. No. No. It's not. Well, if that's it's... not the worst, which one is? Thor 2. For me, it's the second from bottom. I think it's it's got a lot of problems, you know, in, in general. And a, a lot of people say the same kind of things about this. You know, it does have its defenders. It's one of those films that has, oh, you know, when you see articles that, am I the only one who thinks such and such film is brilliant? And most of the time people are going, yes, you are. And in, in this case, <laughs> that's one of them. Because it's, it tries, it's got, it has got some really good, I think, aspirations. And that whole storyline of Tony Stark is, is a really good one. They just don't really get it right. And it suffers from bloated sequel syndrome but I've always thought Iron Man 2 was basically an Iron Man movie that just got too much extra stuff added into it and lots of stuff got cut as a result like most of Pepper Potts's role in it what sums it up for me I don't know if people have tracked this down on uh, YouTube but after John Favreau obviously kind of left the production and was just a bit upset with the whole thing because much like Edgar Wright seems to have done with, with uh, Ant-Man and now it looks like Joss Whedon's going to be doing as well are just taking a step back because there's so many demands coming in from what that film's got to do to serve all the other films rather than being able to be its own thing it just got too much for the whole thing the 
um, original opening sequence, which in the film just has Tony in his Iron Man suit walking silently to the edge of a plane and then jumping out to do the spirally thing to land down in the middle of the start conference, but originally had this brilliant Tony and Pepper scene where he's in the suit, you know, thrown up because he's so nervous and she's trying to get into to um you know uh, get his metal together and then jump out it's got the moment that we all saw in the trailers where she kisses the helmet and throws it out the plane and he jumps out after it you complete me and it's a classic example of how so much got ended up being cut from that film or shuffled around to accommodate other pieces of it that it's almost like <laughs> years from now we might get an iron man 2 director's cut that gets rid of a lot of that faff and presents all the original footage that was put together for it before it had to be kind of chopped up. Before Mickey Rourke's final boss fight got hacked down to about two minutes or whatever it ended up being. But yes, it's uh, there's some good points there in that maybe it, it was a film that was too you know chopped up and everything like that. But uh, it did it did well at the box office and of course it queued up the fourth film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe thanks to its post credit sequence. Uh, in Spider Man, it's fantastic. No, because I'm checking to make sure I get this right. Okay. <laughs> Oh, very simple one Agent Coulson in the desert finding Thor's hammer which obviously leads in to Thor I have sacrificed much to achieve peace Thor through your arrogance and stupidity you have opened these peaceful realms and innocent lives to the horror and devastation of war you are a vain greedy cruel boy and you are an old man and a fool! You're unworthy! Father, I am! And I'll take from you your power! And I cast you out! <laughs> You're Thor? I'm so Thor I can hardly fit down. <laughs> Emma, bring some sense back into proceedings and tell us about Thor. You want me to bring some sense? Yeah, this is how far it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> You've seen what you're up against. It shouldn't be too hard. So it kind of reminds you a bit like a fairy tale. It's just got like this whimsical magic about it, I think, especially obviously because some of it's set in Asgard and things like that. And I think having Kenneth Branagh on board was just... I'm reading that and thinking, seriously, Kenneth Branagh? He's doing Thor? But it kind of had like this almost Shakespearean vibe to it you know two brothers feuding over the throne and that kind of thing and it wasn't too special effects heavy or anything especially the scenes in Asgard and things like that and it was enough of a an orange story if you didn't know both thought but it, it kind of moved really fast you know so you had like oh he's going to be king and then the frost giants come and Tom Hiddleston was kind of his performance in it is one of these quiet like background ones that you don't really realise that he's acting the shit out of it and he's really stealing the movie until you, after it's finished and you're like fucking hell that Loki guy was good wasn't he <laughs> <laughs> and you know when it came out and every all the girls on you were like oh my god Tom Hiddleston's gorgeous and I was like are you messing he's horrible and now years later I'm just like let's see what this you mean this is totally going on my tumbler now <laughs> <laughs> I was the... no but it, it definitely had this kind of like yeah, like I said, like almost like the Shakespearean vibe where Loki's like the... I didn't understand his motivation for wanting to be king, except just because I know I can't, I want to be king. That's a bit of a shitty thing to do, isn't it, really, when you think about it? Just like, I'm going to kill our dad, and fuck you, he's loved me for years, but I'm going to fucking kill you so I can have the throne. But what kind of let it down for me a little bit is... I didn't understand whether he had to like force this kind of romance storyline between 
Natalie Portman's character and so I was just like what she was there for like three days and they're in love and he's like oh I'll come back for you and shit like that I was just like what the fuck's that about and his yeah, eyebrows are terrible any other movies. Chris Hemsworth eyebrows are fucking atrocious in this film like honest <laughs> to god why did they make him bleach his eyebrows he just looks weird it looks soulless it's fucking disturbing my question is did they bleach his nose hair as well or do you not notice nose hair he's a god Oh, there you go, then. <laughs> it is an interesting one, though, Thor, because it took a, it took the first risk in a way because it it took us away from Earth for a, a fair bit of it, and went and explored. You know, opened up to Asgard and the Nine Realms. It's interesting because it it takes it does for the first time it takes us to different parts of the Marvel universe, and that was always a bit of a risk in that where people people potentially are going to be okay with the Hulk and, and Iron Man, but are they going to be okay with a, an alien race effectively, even though they look human? Are they going to be okay with all that old mythology and, and everything like that? And I think, obviously, one of the main reasons is that they cast Chris Hemsworth, who's this Adonis of a man. And importantly, I think the bits where Thor's at its best are when they are taking the piss out of him. And this is, this is why Thor works better when he's not in his own films. Because in, in the other films, most of the other films anyway that he's in, the Avengers films, he's being mocked quite often. And that's, he's comic relief, isn't he? He's comic relief, really. He's the big, long-headed, oh, yes, I am a god. And then somebody will you know, th- punch him or, or you know, take the pit. And it, it, it works really well because he's, he's so pantomime in that sense that you, know, you can't take him seriously in a way. But when he's headlining it and he has to do the serious stuff, he's less effective. It was the bits in this where he goes, I am the mighty! And then someone injects him. With it, with it, you know, and he's like, oh. that, that's that's when this film's really good and really working. The rest of it, at times, it gets it can get a little bit ponderous and a bit silly potentially. But again, as I was saying, the point of Iron Man was kind of going a UK with the concept of sort of modern day self made superheroes. Hulk says you're okay with the idea of the classic radiation accident superheroes. And then Thor says, are you okay with kind of basically alien superheroes? Because if you are, then cool. That basically covers everything that's going to happen for the next 20 years in our films. And if you're on board with this stuff, you're down for it all, basically. Now we just need to introduce you to a raccoon. (laughs) And a talking... and a tree. But that's a fair point, actually. If, If they hadn't accepted Thor and Asgard, it would have been a lot harder to get people to accept Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, if they'd have done that earlier on... I think it would have it would have turned a lot of people off because I think people would have it would have been too soon, you know. They Thor was what too was, weird. Yeah, too weird. Thor was probably one of the ones that was a good way of indoctrinating people into a, a much bigger universe than just superheroes on Earth, um, mm. which obviously is, is something that DC are going to have to be very careful of as they go forward. Again, that ties into you know the villain Thanos and the villains of um, the Chitauri in uh, the first Avengers is that without establishing that this kind of stuff is out there through Thor. If you suddenly have, if we'd suddenly had all these aliens turn up in the fifth movie, and we hadn't had any kind of soft introduction to that, it would have felt more incongruous and more kind of out of place with the world that they've been building up. See, I don't, I don't understand to a degree where you're coming from there, because when I go see a superhero film, they can literally throw anything at me, and I'll go, eh, "It's a superhero film. It's not supposed to make fucking sense, is it really?" You know, yeah, so. But that's because we're nerds and we're programmed to like and understand this speak stuff. Speak for yourself. I often yeah. do. How dare you <laughs> These films have to make millions upon billions of dollars at the box yeah. office, and to do that, they can't just appeal to nerds. It's why a lot of our favourite TV shows have only ever lasted one season, because not enough normal people are watching it. But I I, I, yes, I was trying to put air over? quotes around the word normal there, 
But it's it's because now we're in in a, a world where you know Avengers T-shirts are being sold in TK Maxx. You've, yeah. you've got to remember as well in 2011. I mean, it doesn't seem that far away, a lot long ago, but in terms of of movies, to an extent, it was. In terms of the things that have happened since, you know, Marvel was just really kicking off. It wasn't nearly at the fever pitch it is now, mm. and they still had to be careful about what they did. And Lee's absolutely right in that to get maximum returns and to be able to do what they're doing, they needed to appeal to everybody, and they needed to. You know, if you'd have thrown a little raccoon in a talking tree at people then, without some kind of, you know, gorgeous blonde-headed man, people may not have bought it. So, Thor's actually more important a film than people give it credit for. It's certainly not the best one. In fact, when I watched it again not so long back, I, I didn't like it as much as the first time. But it's, it's an important one. One last thing about Thor, to bear in mind as well, is that it's one of the first films to get a really eclectic, big cast of thespians. So... You know, obviously it's got the new people like Chris Hemsworth and Tom Hiddleston, but it's also got people like Stellan Skarsgård, Callum Fiore, Idris Elba, who's obviously on the rise, and crucially Anthony Hopkins. And he's he's the first major, you know, mega star, actual genuine great actor. And, and, cool. and ever That's since then, Marvel have managed to capture more and more of these really, really cool character actors or legendary stars to actually be in their films. So that was possibly the Kenneth Branagh effect um, yeah yeah and let's not forget my homegirl cat dennings you know while we're talking your about home uh, <laughs> your homegirl who could forget and obviously um the final post-credit scene of thor very much helps to tee up spider-man spider-man yes and black panther no uh, and superman and superman man of steel no uh it tees up the avengers obviously because stellan skarsgård ends up with nick fury and uh they're studying a mysterious cube shaped object uh, with a possibly loki you know, in the background doing his trickster thing. So that's that's an important tee-up for uh, for later films. But then the next one takes a bit of a swerve off. And this is where we're going to take a slight swerve off, briefly, because uh, ooh, uh, because <laughs> the next film in the sequence is uh, Captain America, the first Avenger. And uh, this is where uh, Tom East is going to come in. He's going to come in and join the podcast, even though he's not actually with us. So we're going to take a little bit of a break now, where I spoke earlier to Tom about the first Captain America film. said that wars are fought with weapons, but they are won by men. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I could do this all day. Our goal is to create the greatest army in history. I should be going with you. Look, I know you don't think I can do this. This but... isn't a back alley, Steve. It's war. But every army begins with one man. Five tries in five different cities. I can offer you a chance. He will be the first in a new breed of super soldiers. Hello, Tom. Hi. We couldn't let the Avengers mega special go by without Tom giving a few words about this because Tom is easily the biggest Captain America fan I've ever met. This had to happen, and unfortunately, Tom can't make the special. What? Why is it? Why is it, Tom? You you can't make the special. Um, I am going to be in Wales at Wales Comic Con, so um, I'll still be nerding it up. Yes, won't be where you need me to be. You won't be nerdy up with us, which is a good excuse, really. A very good excuse, being nerdy in other locations. But yeah, we couldn't let this go by without talking about Captain America and the First Avenger. So, Tom, tell us a bit about it. What's the... What's it all about? Um, the movie doesn't exactly follow kind of comics canon that closely, but there are little bits. I mean, I've gone back and looked at um, Captain America issue one, and there's little things you can kind of see reflected 
in the movie and like the cosmic cube has been in the Captain America mythos for forever pretty much and the Red Skull's always been after it so the movie does quite a good job of kind of reflecting what the core of the comics is and what Cap is in the comics world which I think is one of the one of the really cool things about the film yeah it's as somebody who doesn't read the comics and hasn't read the comics I I have wondered actually how you know, loyal it is to the backstory, given the fact that the Marvel films themselves have, the movies have had to maybe adapt themselves to be a certain kind of way in order to make this this interconnected universe. So, it's interesting to that if they were able to balance the traditional Captain America story with the the new Marvel universe, do you think they've managed to do that? Uh, yeah, I do. I think one of the funny things is um, in Captain America issue one. Uh, which came out back during, oh, I, I believe it was actually the 40s, it was pr- mm. perhaps even pre-1941. 19, wow. Yeah, so, I mean, when you see the comic being released in the film, that's genuinely the comic that was released at the time. Um, it was released as kind of, like, anti-Nazi propaganda in America to kind of bring people together and help them support the war effort. The film's kind of meta then, I suppose, in that sense, isn't it, in a way? Because it's it's in-universe in a comic about the character, when in reality the actual comic about the character out in the real world was doing the same thing with, with all the propaganda. It's, that, that's it. I hadn't thought of that before, actually. Yeah, it, it really is. And every time I see the film, I do always have like a little chuckle at that. Because I believe <laughs> um, it is the exact same cover, and the cover of Captain America issue one is actually quite famous because it's um, cat punching Hitler in the face mm. so it's obviously <laughs> an awesome cover Yeah. but um, one of the things that does make me laugh about uh, Captain America issue 1 that is very different from the first Avenger is that Cap's origin story is literally two pages they don't go into any kind of wow. background on who Steve Rogers is it's just like he was a skinny dude and then he was not whereas <laughs> kind of the, the first Avenger um it kind of makes you it makes you fall in love with Steve before he becomes Captain America you see who he is as a person before uh, he becomes the superhero that we all know right you know we see how courageous he is and we see his relationship with Bucky and kind of we like him by the point that he becomes Captain America so we are invested in his story whereas the comics never really bothered with that they were literally just like this dude is a superhero and Bucky is a child so (laughs) I mean, it's the movie's taken it in a very different kind of direction, but I think it actually works a lot better than the original comic did in that sense because you have that emotional connection to the characters in the film, which took a long time to build up in the comics. Yeah, and I think that's partly because perhaps of the tone they took with this in that they they made it very much... You know, each Marvel film... Uh, has had its own kind of style, hasn't it? You know, they've all had their own kind of almost genre, and it's getting even more that way as as the films go on. They all kind of fit into either like a space opera, or they're a you know a bit a bit of a, a more of a caper, or they're a darker piece of work, or they're a conspiracy thriller. And this one, this this felt very much you know um, adventure serial of the nineteen thirties, Indiana Jones style, daring do hokum and. I think maybe that factored into why you were able to warm to these characters because I think there was that light, perhaps that lightness of touch that that helped carry the story. Yeah, absolutely. I do think it definitely is a um, 
it's obviously a war film as well, but mm. it's kind of kind of a light light-hearted kind of approach to it. It's very kind of there's no real word for it, so let's just call it superhero-y. You know, it's all very <laughs> majestic, and you really kind of you're rooting for Cap, and when he does all the fantastic stuff, you kind of you you believe everything you're seeing because you're not really questioning it because you believe that kind of here's the superhero and that's just what the world is like because the film does such a good job of blending the war with the kind of superhero genre and mm. it's like an adventure I will say one of the things about the film which I'm not annoyed with but it's slightly disappointing is that some of the like really exciting stuff some of the stuff I was definitely looking forward to seeing in the film which is Cap physically going up against the Nazis and going up against Hydra is all in a montage in the middle of the film like mm the Howling Commandos montage and it's like that could have easily been spread out across the film and it would have been pretty epic just to see them go up go up against the enemy in these kind of like really famous battles and um, it is kind of like pulled down into a three minute montage which does suck it's a cool montage it is a good montage but it is it... A, yeah it's a good montage I just kind of wish we saw more of it yeah um but I suppose to make me happy, the film would have to have been like 12 hours long. <laughs> um, so that, that is that is kind of a shame. But at the same time, you know, I do think that maybe if that montage had been spread out a bit more, we would have gotten to know the rest of the Howling Commanders a bit better. We would have maybe cared about them a bit more because otherwise they're kind of standing around as extras and the only people in that group we really know and care about is Cap, obviously Cap and then Bucky. Mm. Um and I, I did think that Bucky kind of got the short end of the stick in this film. He's not really kind of... Like, they do push his friendship with Steve, but it's not really... I've never felt it was really solidified by the yeah. point that he goes flying off the edge of a train. Um, That's, I agree, actually, because it was quite a shock. Obviously, most people, you know, people who read the comics would know the general storyline with all that. But to anyone who hadn't, it would have been like, an, oh, my God. But you didn't really feel it as in, oh, my God, his best friend is dead. You know, even though if you know your comics, you know he's not. But it was more like an oh, okay, oh, it, you know, the, yeah, I agree. There was no real emotional power to that when there perhaps should have been. In fact, there definitely should have been. Yeah, I, I think I hasten to call it a problem, but I'd say, uh, but one of kind of the reasons that happen is because the film spends so much time setting up the relationship between Steve and Peggy Carter yeah. that kind of Steve's friendship with Bucky kind of gets the short shift because you understand the connection between Steve and Peggy a lot more than you do between Steve and Bucky because by that point Steve and Bucky have had maybe one or two scenes together whereas Steve and Peggy have had at least five or six so you understand their connection better so if it had been Peggy that had been blown out of the train I think audiences would have felt it a lot more because there had been that emphasis on them that wasn't there on Bucky yeah but yeah it swings and roundabouts I mean so like obviously Bucky kind of there's more later on but I think in the context of this film Bucky does feel a bit shorthanded especially when he's such an important character in the uh, original Captain America run so but I think that's that's a consequence as well of, of again of Marvel not only thinking in terms of you know the, the overall cinematic universe up until now but later you know they knew they probably knew back then that the second film was going to deal with well, A, it was getting capped to the future, which again means that they have to sacrifice, you know, more time with the Howling Commandos and more time in the war. You know, if they'd have done three Captain America films set in the 40s, then you would have had all that. 
You know, to get him to the future, they have to go through all that quickly, for better or worse. And the same with Bucky. They knew more than likely that the Winter Soldier was going to be the second story for Cap. And it, and it is the logical story um, right. in the future. But you have to rush these things, unfortunately, to get to where you need to be. Which is, even though it's a, it's a really fun film, and I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of this one. I think it's one of the best ones. You ha- they had to rush certain things, I think, yes, in order to get... To where they to where they meant wanted to be, and I think you've hit hit the nail on the head with it being the more the romance is the more central element. Do you think that Chris Evans and and Hayley Atwell have good chemistry? Do you think the cast overall is 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 a, is a strong one here? I think the cast in this film is um, pretty damn awesome. I think mm. Chris Evans is uh, very underrated as an actor as it is, um, but he's completely believable as Steve Rogers in the same way that. Hayley Atwell is as mm. Peggy Carter to the point that Marvel have had to like make a short movie of them, make a TV show for <laughs> Hayley Atwell because there has been audiences have connected to her portrayal of Peggy so yeah. much. In the in the original comic book, she is a minor character at best. Um, mm. She's referenced like once or twice by Sharon. She only makes a couple of appearances, and yet it's because of Hayley Atwell's portrayal of her that Peggy Carter's gone on to become kind of one of the big faces of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, I, w- I would say she's easily up there with Black Widow because mm. she's the first kind of female character to have her own kind of fronted projects in Marvel Cinematic Universe. She's uh, a fan favourite for sure. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So I think, and this film has kind of built Steve and Peggy up to have these huge kind of fan bases and because of Chris Evans and Hayley Atwell, like giving so much of the roles it really works again the the cast for the Howling Commanders they're all really great actors and it was nice seeing some of them back for Agent Carter mm. but um, so I do wish we got to see a bit more of them in the film I think if say um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe if all of the movies were say miniseries of 12 episodes like they're doing with Daredevil I think maybe this film maybe would have worked better as a miniseries because you would have had that time to get to know everyone to the point where in the Avengers you physically would have felt Cap's loss of the past like the fact that you'd never see all of his friends and Peggy again because you would have connected to those characters at a point where bam suddenly they're gone it's a brave new world and stuff whereas kind of going on from this like you can understand why Steve's sad but because you'd never spend that much time with those characters, you, you you're not personally kind of no. invested in them. So I think I don't know. Maybe it's just me wanting my twelve-hour Captain America movie. <laughs> Who knows? But no, it's a trade-off. But, it is a trade-off. I think I think it's a good point because the the longer series are going, you know, by by default, are naturally going to you know connect more with the characters and give you more to chew on with that no I think I think it's a very good point this is the trade off Marvel have to do in order to in order to get characters to a certain point which is why their best films I think are the ones that really do make you feel things and they make you care even in their short running time and, and they have that, that that spirit and that you know that that sense of fun and I, I think this I think the reason this is a good film as well is that has that too that has that combination of the fact that you do you do like and care about these people even if we don't know them that well but you also enjoy the ride and it's it's a fun it's a fun ride, and as we've said, manages to blend not just a like a, an adventure serial kind of gong ho kind of thing, but also a a war movie, which is a tricky balance to pull off. <laughs> you know, 
Yeah, I definitely think you're right, though. It really does kind of combine the fun with the sadness. Mm. Well, um, thanks for popping in and talking about Cap. Yep, thank you for having me, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. Thank you very much. At the end of Captain America, obviously, Nick Fury approaches Steve Rogers when he's been thawed out and asks him to join. And this he is thawed out. Thawed out. Yeah, <laughs> like and, uh, and then that's it. We're away. And it's the big one. It's uh, Marvel's Avengers Assemble. War has started. And we are hopelessly outgunned. Director Fury, I think it's time. Here with the mission, sir. Trying to get me back in the world. Trying to save it. Doctor, we need you to come in. What if I say no? I'll persuade you. What are you asking me to do? It's called the Avengers Initiative. Fusion of 80s pop again. All <laughs> the, the Avengers, depending on where you are, and obviously it wasn't called The Avengers in England because of the fact we have The Avengers from the 60s, so they changed it in England. But A decision were, made entirely by the board of... Like film, the film board who remembered this and thought that kids who you know are fifty <laughs> years removed from this thing might get a bit confused about something that they probably never have heard no, of. I think that I guess that shows how out of touch the BBFC are. I was going to say Well, obviously. <laughs> Emma, you, you're going to lead on talking about Avengers, which, I mean, I will just say quickly, I think it's still the best one of them all. But, uh, mm. yeah, what it, what, 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 tell us about it. Do you know how, like, I've been talking about Age of Ultron for, like, a year? Mm. Well, I was about ten times worse in the lead of two Avengers. I was... For me, I remember I worked in the cinema when this was on and went to the opening night with my mum. And literally, when it started, I grabbed my mum's hand and... My, literally my eyes filled up that's how important this film was to me seeing all these not just from the movies but I've like like comics for quite a few years and I remember watching you know the Iron Man cartoons and things like that so this was really important to me and to see it all finally come together was just it was something I never thought would happen and it was really quite emotional that sounds super sad but I'm not going to apologise for it the first bit when you've got Cap and Iron Man and Thor and Loki I was just like I can't believe this is happening I just can't believe this is happening there's so much action in it and you've got your storyline of like you know Loki's coming to basically we need someone to rule us because we're all knobheads and stuff like that and Thor's like no you're not and it's the team coming together and you've and got the, the introduction plot. of Hulk <laughs> and it's literally the entire plot you've got Hawkeye coming into it and stuff like that I like the way Hawkeye went off to do his own little thing with Loki because we hadn't really seen him before except for a little bit in Thor so everyone got was kind of integral into moving the story along, which and the to have Joss Whedon direct and write it, I mean, it's just the icing on the neck, isn't it? Really, who else could have done it justice? I, I can't I think. I remember a tweet that someone retweeted um, when it came out. Um, the tweet says something: "We've done it, people. We've managed to converge both universes where Joss Whedon is critically acclaimed and successful at once." So <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a very, it's very weird. But it's a very weird scenario. But, he, but that's true, though, because he, he's somebody... I mean, you know, I, I will say this. Before the Avengers, 
it was before actually I'd watched Buffy or Angel as well and I I thought he was good but I didn't quite get the hype with Joss Whedon and then when I watched the Avengers and I was just absolutely blown away by it in, in, considering that I didn't particularly think much of the trailer strangely enough and I was like oh this might be alright and I just went in there and I thought it was phenomenal and I came out and I just was like I want to see it straight away again that yeah, was the point with Joss Whedon that I realised how great he was what you guys had been saying for, for years and and it was so nice to see somebody who he's has been critically acclaimed and who's fucking suffered for his art yeah. over the years you mm-hmm. know, and all the shit he's been thrown at him to finally make a film that was that has grossed 1.5 billion and he's the third highest grossing film ever only beaten by Titanic and Avatar so both shit Right, <laughs> and so we that, all yeah, know really, the whole kind yeah. of 3D ticket inflation prices thing argument exactly. that we could have about those films. It, but that, but it's it, it, so if it, it's the third highest grossing film, and it's it's easily the the best critically acclaimed film of all time if you look at it from that perspective. That's made that amount of money. So it had the right amount of humour. Like I said, I went to see the first one night, and when um, Hulk punched Thor, and the whole puny god thing, <laughs> like it was just. So it could have been so bad and so camp, but it was so well done. And the moment that my favorite moment from that film is when they're in New York, and Mark Ruffalo's just showed up and gone, "Ah, oh, that's my secret. I'm always angry and fucking smash the big thing on its head." Oh god! And they're all so standing satisfying. in a circle, and they're all like, you know, suiting up and Cat flips a shield and Hulk Thor gets his hammer, and I was just like, "Oh my god! Oh my god! This is amazing! I think I'm gonna cry." And I think I probably did cry. Everyone was was like cheering and screaming in the cinema, though. I'm sure for all our showings, when those things were happening, mm. when yeah. thought you know Hulk punches Thor and and, and Hulk punches the you know the thing, and like you say, the the, the pan round shot of, of them all, everyone was just like whoa because it was it was just <laughs> that kind of iconic. This is why I think it's it. I mean, it's a cliche term, but I think it is the Star Wars of our generation in this sense. That film. Yeah. Do you know what that pan round? Reminded me of. Do you know that scene in, in No Serenity when River, River's in the bar and the music and the, the advert comes on and she like flips and she starts like oh, kicking yeah, everyone's yeah. off and you were like, I've been waiting for this. That's what that, that pan round shot reminded me of yeah. too much. Like, they've been building up for so long and that's what it really reminds Like, finally it happened, you know, and it was only a short little thing, but. And it works, and that's the, that's the crucial thing. When it could have been a massive clusterfuck, it, it works. It also works as well. I mean, the Josh Boy fact, the Josh Boy. The Josh, Josh Boy. <laughs> <laughs> what is wrong with you? Uh, I mean... secret name when you're on the webcam. <laughs> is he joining Rodney Downey Jr. and Tony Stork? <laughs> <laughs> I'm liking this pocket universe that Laverman habits. <laughs> yeah, like like in the Among Us, Laverman's got his own little yeah Marvel pocket universe of, of names and characters. Well, say, That's uh, a full size uh, universe for Laverman. Takes all the boxes, but in terms of the technical writing level as well, it it, it closes off this first phase very yeah. well. It acts as a season finale, and being a fan of shows which has quite a few Joss Whedon um, season finales, it, it works very similar to how they did Buffy now, how they did Buffy especially, and that it kind of closes off quite a few plot lines, um, character arcs that open up in, the, in their films, with perhaps the exception of Thor, who's a bit underserved. In this one, mm. um, they have like considerable elements of closure. I mean, um, Tony gets his self-sacrificing moments, and it's probably it's probably his greatest moments of heroism in the whole series so far that you haven't really seen him doing anything else. I'm so glad you mentioned the um, the season finale comment. Was it you that tweeted it? I think, um, but it, that's where Joss brings his experience from television. 
yeah. to the table. Yeah, I mean, and um, Captain America has his own, like, has his climatisation moment as well. Um, and, mm. he also gets my, and he's also part of uh, one of my favourite moments in the film, where he goes, Which of us? Another reference! <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he looks at proud of himself as well. Yeah. man's playing Calica. What's also funny is that Joss Whedon's always said that he struggles to write Captain America because he struggles with kind of the do, the do, the do, the do right um, kind of boy scared character. Um, I think he does quite well. But what? He's got a lot of experience with flawed heroes, and I think it's working on two levels with the character as well. Is that yeah. there's the outward sort of swagger. It, it's like that Gallagher moment that I just mentioned. That Tony basically is just acting around like a buffoon, so that no one notices him kind of slipping bugs and trackers and things all over the bridge yeah. of the uh, <laughs> of the carrier. It's that kind of having characters who are operating on two levels, but you're only really maybe aware of one of them at any given moment. Tony Stark's like a big kid in this, though. He's like like my son. Just you know, poking around, to see what like how far you push it. Like the scene in the lab with uh, Bruce Banner, and he's like so desperate to get him to turn into. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Hulk, like he's like, oh, I'm a big fan of your work, and I like it when you turn into a enormous green rage monster. And he keeps like poking, poking him and him. stuff, like, <laughs> like, and like you watch it and go, oh, you're not bad. That's not going to end well. But Tony Stark, she's like, tee, tee, poke, poke, poke. I want to see the Hulk? Hello, what are you doing? Now we're not finished. <laughs> Special guest. <laughs> what does he think of the Avengers? Uh, what do you think of the Avengers, Freddy? Do you like the Avengers? Are they good or are they bad? Okay. Who's your favourite Avenger? The Hulk. It's a good choice. Yeah. Come give me a kiss. Come Woo. here. Come give me a kiss. Oh, I'm here. Give me a kiss. Stop being stingy. Come give your mother a curse. I love you. <sighs> sorry. That's that was completely in. adorable. <laughs> that is staying in, Emma. Sorry, some of that. Yeah. <laughs> I've got this image that there's like a cupboard in Josh Whedon's house. Um, 
labels stuff that I really want Tony Stark to say on screen but couldn't fit in. Mm. And he's just basically got a load of dialogue that he just had to write but couldn't put in anywhere. But I think the, the thing with the difference with this, and I think one of the reasons it works so well, is the fact that there is a definite distinction between the dialogue in the previous films and in, in this film. Yeah. You know, you can tell this has the Joss Whedon sheen on it, the Joss Whedon mm. wit, that sense of, you know, almost meta winking knowing, you know, uh, about all the conventions and, and things like that. And it's why it punches up to a different level. One of the things that I found really, really strange lately is when I've spoken to several people, admittedly people who aren't massive like fans of Marvel and movie fans, who've seen the Avengers and they've they've, they've not liked it. And this is the reason why. It's because it's all just them talking and then there's not much action in it. Oh. Now, if anything, one of the reasons <laughs> film I didn't they like watching? Age of Ultron as much is because of the opposite, right? Now, mm. for me, and we'll get to that later, mm. but I, I, I can't understand people who seem to think the Avengers... I mean, do they not understand that you could have a whole film of people talking in Joss Whedon language? And, and it would still be amazing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it baffles me. Yeah, it, yeah, it baffles me. Not and it's not true either. It's actually not this, the, it, true that there's no plot. The same, the same, the same criticism was given to um, the social network at some point. They're saying there's just a bunch of people talking about stuff, but it's Aaron talking. Exactly, they miss, yeah. they're missing the yeah. point. These great yeah. wordsmiths. Nice the are the films are just a bunch of people talking about stuff. We've, we've kind of already mentioned it, but the thing that makes Avengers so great and the, the Marvel films themselves as a whole is the human element to it. It is the quieter moments that make mm. it so good. And that's why you know, Man of Steel is never going to be close to those films is because it's Man of Steel is all just throwing people through buildings, which is great to watch for you know a few minutes, but you can't watch that film in, film out. There's got to be those small moments where you get intimacy between the characters and great dialogue and ultimately interesting characters themselves. Otherwise, you might as well just go and watch an action film. That's precisely... Yeah, exactly. That was my point I was making earlier about the new Godzilla movie that tries to do much the same thing. Okay, the mm. characters and writing aren't as good or as interesting as they could have been, but mm. by kind of having these longer build-ups between the sort of the release of the actual big monster smackdowns, even though it's only fleeting moments of it, when these things do happen, it kind of... It's your release of tension. And even the dialogue scenes had a pace about them. They weren't just sort of sitting around in a room just talking to each other about the weather for half an hour. Exactly. Mm. They were driving the story forward. I think the the only scene where they're sitting down is Black Widow and Hawkeye in the medical room. I think that's the only scene where they're sitting talking. Mm. Yeah, you know, and it, it... That's that's why one of the reasons it, it's it's such a great film, and it was great to see the first phase of the Marvel plan climax yeah. in such an epic way. And you know, the next film along the list, after obviously the pre-credit sequence, very much teases up the uh, the overarching you know big um, villain of Thanos. Um, even though we don't really, he's not named, and we don't necessarily hear him talk. Um, well, we have the swarm, the swarm bit at the end, <laughs> which is a very great good scene. It obviously bleeds into what right now is, is the last Iron Man film, Iron Man 3. Got a lot of apologies to make. Nothing's been the same since New York. They experience things, and then they're over. I can't sleep. And when I do, I have nightmares. Honestly, 
There's a hundred people who want to kill me. I hope I can protect the one thing I can't live without. Emma, you uh, you took the lead on this one again. The third and final Iron Man film. Let's uh, let's hear about it. The, yeah, it's like someone mentioned before, it's kind of like almost an end to Tony Stark's story where he's dealing with his past mistake of basically ignoring Aldrich Killian. The first sequence is them in like 2000 and he's talking to that woman who's not a botanist about the whole extremist program and things like that. But he's also kind of suffering with like post-traumatic stress disorder. Like he's built this whole like iron army almost to protect himself because he's having flashbacks of the wormhole at the end, end of Avengers and... He can't sleep, and it's it's kind of like it's, it was nice to see Tony Stark deal with this vulnerability that he now felt after the events of Avengers. So it kind of humanized him a little bit because he's such an arrogant bastard. Like in every film, like I'm better than all of you. It was nice to see that that side of him, and it was also nice to see him have to deal with the consequences of what he like his almost his past life. I'm not sure how I feel about this film, to be honest. Like there's times when I really love it. And then there's other times when I think, oh, it's all right, but that's about it. So, and I think quite a lot of people, from my experience, don't like it. And it's not that I don't like it, it's just, it's obviously much better than Iron Man 2, but that's not really hard. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, there are really, like, the whole, the scene where he's being captured, and it's, you know, his suit's coming for him, and he's like, oh, you're going to be sorry in, like, five seconds, and he's counting down, <laughs> he's going, I'll give you ten more. And... At the very end, I mean, I didn't particularly like the scene where Pepper saved the day. What the fuck was that about? It was a possible jump the shark moment, wasn't it, for that character? There was I liked yeah. the moment when Pepper turns up and saves him. I do not like the moment immediately afterwards where he just offhandedly says, oh, but then I sort of made it better and she was fine, so that that's okay again. Yeah, it's like, it's no, okay. why it's don't fixed. we keep her having her awesome superpowers? Because that would be brilliant. But maybe it was just me who thought know, that. Yeah. I like the whole, when he's talking about... He's got his version of the clean slate. Remember, we were talking about this in the Fast and Furious podcast about how there's this clean slate with a racial criminal record. But his clean slate thing was like getting rid of the Iron Man um, costumes. And he like finally he's able to take the shrapnel out of his heart. So he's not really Iron Man anymore. And he's like, I don't really need these suits. And it's kind of him coming to terms with who he is and who he wants to be and all that kind of thing. Realizing so, it's not all on him anymore. Yeah, I like the fact that. The story kind of answered why the Avengers went there. Like, it just happened so fast, and he kind of said, oh, they're all off doing their own thing, and I've got to do this on my own. But it, it could have been... If I hadn't seen an Age of Ultron, I wouldn't have been surprised, because I felt like that was a good enough ending for the character that it wouldn't have bothered me. I think any film that starts with I'm blue, double, D, double, die, <laughs> that song is ultimately going in as a winner. Um, <laughs> because that is just the ultimate song of the end of the 90s. So... Um, <laughs> But for me, Iron Man 3 definitely was a, a step up from Iron Man 2. And I don't know if it's as good as the first Iron Man, but for me, I have a lot more love for it than I think other people do. There are moments where I'm a bit like, oh, did you have to do that? And, you know, Pepper Potts suddenly becoming Super Pepper was, um, you know... A, like a, a, a bit <laughs> <laughs> Next to Super Salt. As, as, as you said, it was kind of a jump the shark moment, I think, for her. But ultimately, you knew it was going to happen. As soon as she falls into the pit of fire, you knew she wasn't dead. And you kind of knew where you, we, we've seen people walk through fire already So in that film. So we kind of knew she was going to be okay. Saving Tony, I don't know, because ultimately he should be the superhero of that film. 
but overall i really liked it um i know people weren't a fan of the fact that the mandarin um wasn't really the mandarin um, oh, i love that I, see i, I do as well that's an amazing twist yeah. i love that i i agree i'm yeah, glad everyone moment. i loved i love that twist i thought it was brilliant and ben kingsley plays it so brilliant, brilliantly <laughs> yeah um ben but see in that moment you know when he's like the real like what's his name trevor slattery, trevor trevor. Slattery. Trevor slattery yeah. yeah he reminds me so much of my friend ben when he's drunk <laughs> like that kind of actually <laughs> yeah, the beauty of that scene, obviously, and that moment, is the fact that everyone expects to cast Ben Kingsley as this scary sort of, you know, serious. I am very important villain, and then the wonderful thing of him just being a pissed up Cockney actor—it's it's brilliant. Well, it's, it's really clever. Well, really clever. What what I find quite interesting about it though is that it's because the man, the traditional origin of the Mandarin. I'm not 100 sure on it whether he's actually an alien or not. I don't think so. I think he is just like a, a foreign terrorist kind of dude. Um, yeah, I'll check. There may have been more than one version rings. of the character. He's inherited magic alien rings. I think that's his source of his power. Yeah. But I think he's just like a Chinese supervillain. Yeah, I think so. He just didn't moisturise that day away from okay. <laughs> yeah, I suspect that the whole thing with, with the Mandarin and this Ben Kingsley twist is because of the creative influences behind this and it's one of those things where they won out over Marvel I mean Shane Black was the director of this and Shane Black's the genius behind Lethal Weapon Kiss Kiss Bang Bang he's one of the great underappreciated writer directors of Hollywood in the last like 30 years and I was really excited when he was announced as director for this when Jon Favreau decided not to do it again and And indeed writer this yeah this kind of this kind of twist I suspect is Shane Black saying well why don't we do this and then because they because for Marvel didn't have necessarily a grand plan for the Mandarin like they do with other villains and other things that's when they went okay, and then he won that out, and and that's that's why I think that I that's one of the reasons I really like Iron Man three because the, I think it does have an element of the director behind it more so than some of the other films do. You see, that's the point I was going to make is that this is probably the second film after the Avengers to have a sort of auto writer director behind yeah. it, and you get it again later on in Guardians with James Gunn doing again pretty much the same sort of thing, imposing their style on it while mm. before with in house writers directors. It didn't have quite the same ballsiness, almost. Yeah, it's why Edgar Wright's Ant Man would yeah. have been so great. Mm. Not all of this works, you know. It's it's got the, the plot's a bit all over the place. Guy mm. Pierce, he's always good, but his his villain doesn't really work. You know, it's it's not perfect, but it's it's you know it's got a lot more going for it than the second one. And did you guys know it made one point two billion? Yeah, it was massive. Yeah, it was, it was really? Massive. Yeah, wow. Sixth yeah. highest grossing film of all time. Now, I never, I didn't know it did nice. that well. So. It's riding yeah. the crest of the Avengers plus Robert Downey Jr., wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, the, the, exactly. the, the reason I kind of brought up the Mandarin twist was because I, I at the time when that one came out, I, I had a lot of comic book fans, as it were, um, working on the team. And they didn't like that. They said, that, oh, the Mandarin's this great villain and he's going to be completely wasted um, and it's such a shame. But I guess from a more casual perspective um, someone that, that loves the MCU but doesn't necessarily read the comics mm. I thought it was a brilliant twist um, and so I'm glad you guys kind of agree and it, it doesn't necessarily mean they can't bring the Mandarin back because ultimately the, uh, it's just a title, it's just a name yeah. there's no reason why someone can't take on that mantle or whether Ben Kingsley's character was actually fooling everybody Have you seen the, um, the mini sort of sequel to, to the Trevor Saga, um, which is, I believe, on four Blu-ray, four Blu-ray, which continues the story of Trevor in yeah, prison. I've heard about and this. 
yeah. it brings it brings the ten rings back into play. It's a terrific little video if you can find it. It's, it's Ben Kingsley basically playing exactly the same role again with exactly the same amount of gusto, and then it, it sort of retcons a little bit the idea of a Mandarin, so it might sort of satisfy the the die-hard comic purists yeah. a little bit more. And it, as, as I said, it is possible that it, I guess it's less so because we saw him, you know, being arrested and still doing the oh la di da yes kind of <laughs> act. But you know, had had that all been for Stark, had we not seen him do it? You know, in front of other people, then there was always that uh, that possibility that actually he was acting. You know, he was an actor within an actor, but it's, it's still a possibility. And I, I still think the Mandarin's an interesting character, and just getting Ben Kingsley about to do anything would be great. Good call. But of, of course, you know, the success of this uh, this rampant success wasn't quite necessarily repeated for the next one. Um, for the Dark World. After all this time, now you come to visit me, brother. Why? To mock. I need your help. But I wish I could trust you. If you did, you'd be the fool I always took you for. This one potentially had its detractors too, didn't it, Lydon? I don't see why. I think it's the best film in the whole oh. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I'm so glad he's sitting by me and I can see how facetious he's being. I can't work under these conditions, I swear. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I mean, come on. Can you name me one moment in Avengers Assemble that's better than the size of Thor on the tube? Can you name me one... <laughs> can you name your You're just trying to wind me up. <laughs> yeah, and the next question Odd is that. Actually name me what the flipping hell the villain's name is because I can't flipping remember. Malkeith. It's Christopher Eccleston. In a funny mask. <laughs> I'm gonna... It's Christopher Eccleston dressed up as one of the goblins from Nightmare. <laughs> now, Thor in Nightmare. Thor in Nightmare would be a brilliant concept for a film, wouldn't it? I believe it's Malekith. Um, oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. That's right. Malekith. Now, what did you really think, Logan? I thought it was the best film in the oh. <laughs> You've broken his sarcasm meter, I think, haven't you? <laughs> I think maybe Latham's forfeited his uh, abilities to do a review on it now. We yes. should move on to the next one. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's about all we need to talk about for Dark World, really. We've covered it in detail. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, I'll say what it does have is that it has Cap Dennings in it. Mm-hmm. Um, always a bonus. Yeah, Chris O'Dowd in it. A lot of the ideas in it are actually quite interesting. I think especially phase two Marvel films have been, always had the um, criticism that oh no the final set piece is a big massive rock slash helicopter smashing to earth in terms of phase two I mean the the actual set piece the, the idea is actually quite unique and interesting where you've got like them travelling through different worlds as well as so like people like Trace Hammer and it goes onto an alien planet and, <laughs> and then back to London the, the idea good the execution, not so good. I mean, how long, how long is the winning time? Probably about two hours, aren't they? One minutes. There you go. It feels like It suffers from the same issue that Iron Man 2 had in that there's a lot of good stuff that ended up being cut from the film that would have helped clear bits of it up. Like the whole, the, the, the switch over the Loki-Odin bit at the end that just kind of happens but as I understand it actually had some scenes that set that up a little bit better so that it made sense what had actually gone on rather than it just ending on this massive twist and leaving you going hang on what 
Did, did how did what who happened though? I like I like Loki in the Avengers. Um, I think he was perhaps a bit more shoehorned into this than he perhaps should have been. And at one point, I actually thought. I mean, there's the whole fake out of whether they actually killed him off, and part of me was like, actually, you know, this film might be a lot better if they just let him be, and like, and I think just let him be, and then decide to try and go into some new avenues, like, or just start focusing on new villains and new villains to explore in the future. I think is I think I was actually, I actually, kind of said, oh fuck off, quite lowly when he appeared at the end. <laughs> You yes, yes, we got ejected yes. to the cinema, as I remember. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. How many how many whiskeys have you had at that point, Wave? <laughs> oh, at least twenty. <laughs> None, which is strange enough. But Fireball. Yeah. <laughs> we were putting them in his Diet Coke when he wasn't looking. Yeah. <laughs> it just seems like I mean like a lot I think a lot of the actual plot and Crystal Eccleston in a very Who? Yeah. <laughs> Crystal Eccleston. <laughs> the Christopher. He said Crystal. He said Crystal. Crystal Eccleston. Crystal Eccleston. Crystal Eccleston. Where Crystal Eccleston's villain. What a strip out of a North, you know. Humongous. Oh, God, I'm so glad we don't have a script because otherwise we wouldn't have all these beautiful moments. Yeah. It's Rodney Downey Jr. Rodney Downey Jr. <laughs> <laughs> Versus Crystal Eccles cake. <laughs> in the Among Us. Um, in the Among Us. Yeah, there's. I mean, it was. It's, out of all the villains we've had, I mean, again, one of the recurring criticisms about the Marvel films is that a lot of the villains aren't well defined, and the only real example is that stands out is Low. And I think it, it was good in Thor. It was really good in Avengers. Having him as like a a nuisance in this one. Just, I don't. It just didn't feel right. But you, def- you definitely got a point, though, Laven. That the fact is that I remember back along when before this film was released that they did say that Loki had been added to in this film that he wasn't quite as big, uh, quite as big as big a part as he ended up becoming. And I think in turn that meant that Maliki didn't get developed quite as much as maybe he should have done. And in the end, you've got Christopher Eccleston got completely wasted. He's <laughs> brains in it, like capable of probably stealing scenes but someone to my says oh we need oh we need more Tom Hiddleston we need more Tom Hiddleston we want more Loki we want more Loki that's the fact girl the Dark World is probably the only Marvel film I can think of even incorporating Incredible Iron Man 2 that is forgettable in a way yeah, yeah. You, the thing is you don't need to go we need to add in more Tom Hiddleston you, you put, put the nail on the head where you said he can steal scenes he can steal a scene with what he was already given. He doesn't need to have an expanded... Weren't, um, weren't those house. extra scenes written by Joss Whedon? The extra Hiddleston scenes? I, 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 I don't know. Remember, but, I seem to yeah. remember that being the case. Yeah, it possibly might have been, but and actually you might be right. Um, but the point is it didn't need to, they didn't need to do yeah. that in this. It took so, away uh, from Eccleston, didn't it? It took away from yeah. the poet Malachi having Hiddleston pop up. It's like, we've got another villain here. Well, it's like we were at one point. We were on Earth. We were with Malakith, and then we were also in Asgard. But then also in Asgard prison with Loki, and so you were in too many places at once. And again, it's the criticism of Iron Man Two is that there's just too much going on that then saturated everything. And this, I don't think there's enough going on. Yeah, this is the this is the one that is below Iron Man Two for me. It was probably the lowest point of Phase Two, really. But then yeah. it led into a film which. Uh, which really did uh, get people back on side, which was uh, the second Captain America film, Captain America the Winter Soldier. (laughs) 
Coming up on the drop zone, Cap. You do anything fun Saturday night? Well, all the guys in my barbershop quartet are dead, so... No, not really. You know, if you asked Kristen out from statistics, she'd probably say yes. That's why I don't ask. Too shy or too scared? Too busy! Was he wearing a parachute? No. No, he wasn't. The Winter Soldier, it was uh, possibly Marvel getting back on form. Yeah, for me, this possibly is the highlight. And um, it's quite difficult because I flip the kind of, for my top three around quite a lot. Um, but this definitely goes in there, um, which was surprising for me because, as I said earlier, First Avenger, particularly on First Watch, wasn't my favourite. Um, but with this, they completely changed, well, literally, they completely changed the whole um, backdrop of the Marvel Universe by annihilating everything that we knew about S.H.I.E.L.D. and reintroducing Hydra again to the to the wider universe and the kind of the effects it had on everything even the tv series agents of shield um meant that it had a lasting effect on what was to come and it was done so well because i felt what maybe first avenger didn't do was that it had something to say and something to say about our society and it had that human element element um That's what was missing. I'm seeing. That's what was missing. You wrote it on. Yeah, with Robert Rodriguez, who I've called in before. Robert Rodriguez. (laughs) Do you remember that when I was talking about all his loss? Robert Rodriguez. Robert Rodriguez. Um, But yeah, it brought back the (laughs) humor. I was going to say elephant. (laughs) Try (laughs) saying elephant again. Without thinking this, you won't be able to. No, I can only think of elephant. <laughs> it brings back the humanity um, to Captain America because obviously he's been oh, this. Oh, the humanity. <laughs> oh, the humanity. Oh, right. Oh, the huge manatee. <laughs> <laughs> we've got manatees, we've got elephants, we've got all sorts now. We've got a stork hanging around somewhere. We'll have Peter Porker, the spectacular spider ham, showing up in a minute. <laughs> What it does so well is it brings back the human element to Captain America's character, because obviously he lost that in a way, becoming this super soldier, and he's for the first time he's got this uh, difficult decision to make where he's got his best friend in the world, Bucky Barnes, is ultimately his biggest enemy in this, um, and, it end, and it ends up being, in fact, he's not the biggest enemy at all. You've got Robert Redford's character, whose name comes up goes out of my head yes alexander pierce yeah and the whole hydra operation um which has consumed sealed um that it almost becomes a slight byproduct it, it, there's a small conversation on the bridge between anthony mackie and uh, chris evans where they're talking about the fact that bucky will be at this final showdown which we all know having watched all these marvel films so far that this big showdown will happen and it will be massive and there'll be guns and there'll be um flying off planes and all sorts and it's elephants it's, <laughs> and it's a brilliant spectacle but ultimately it's brought back right at the end to this relationship between these two characters that one character doesn't even realise they've got and Captain America Steve Rogers has this difficult battle that he's got to save the day but he also wants to save his friend and that's what I think is so great about Winter Soldier it felt like a spy movie like a born mm-hmm. film yes. did anyone yeah. else yeah. see elements of it yeah. and what yeah the, poli- the politics as well in it mm. Mm. trying to it was taking a riff on um on the 70s conspiracy thriller story so things like Three Days of the Condor and the Parallax View and, and those kind of movies that were very sort of you know paranoid in a certain sense and that's one of the reasons that Robert Redford was cast because he did all the President's Men 
you know, and it, it's one of those little knowing, oh, okay, kind of castings. And, you know, that it, they got that tone and blended it with a futuristic sense really well. I have to say as well, this is my favourite score of all of them, by Henry Jackman. It's mm. brilliant, the, the, the score for this, and it really helps pulse the movie along. It is, as Emma says, it's like a Bourne movie spliced with a 70s conspiracy thriller with superheroes, and to me that's just my perfect film. Mm. There's a lot to like about this one. It's so good, this one. It's the relationship between Steve and Natasha as well really sells this one. The moment that I keep seeing people referencing back, um, going to, it's the bit just after they've stolen the car and they're driving along in it and um, Natasha's sitting there with her feet up on the dashboard. (laughs) Um, She says something about Steve, like, oh... Teasing him, saying, oh, now you've stolen a car, and without looking at him, he just says, borrowed, and take your feet off the dashboard. And as she just moves, takes her feet back down again, there's this moment where she just gives him this little bit of a grin, and it's almost like you can sense that all of a sudden she kind of realises that, as incorruptible as he is, she gains, like, a ton of respect for him in that moment. And you can tell that these are two people who are going to work brilliantly together, because they're just never going to screw each other over or mess each other around, but they are going to work really well as a team, because they've got this element of you know, affection and respect for one another. Same as she has with, with Hawkeye, and then ultimately as she ends up having with uh, Banner as well. I think that combination of Cap and Widow powers Winter Soldier above the first Avenger, because he's got someone, like I said earlier, to play off. Someone someone yeah. who's it's slightly different ideology, and it brings out more of the Capitude in Cap. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I did indeed say Capitude. <laughs> Quite good. I like that. I think I think um, Romanov, the Black Widow, already had her following, but this film took it to a new level that actually a lot of people, including myself, went into Age of Ultron purely just to watch her. Um, and there's a lot of people we'll go on to it later that obviously hate that relationship with with um, Hulk, but it's sold because of how well built her character has become. I think it's a very it's a very strong entry for uh, Phase Two and. I think it, uh, it it really shifts the whole gears of the of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But then, interestingly enough, and probably wisely, for the um, the second to last film we're going to talk about, it switches things up to a completely different level and gives us Guardians of the Galaxy. We arrested these five on Xandar. Check out the rap sheets. Drax. A.K.A. the Destroyer. Since his wife and family were killed, he's been on a rampage across the galaxy in a search for vengeance. Gamora, soldier, assassin, wanted on over a dozen counts of murder. Rocket, wanted on over 50 charges of vehicular theft and escape from lockup. What the hell? Groot, he's been traveling recently as Rocket's personal houseplant slash muscle. Peter Jason Quill. He's also known as Star-Lord. Who calls him that? Himself, mostly. He's wanted largely on charges of minor assault, public intoxication, and fraud. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm really torn as to whether this or Avengers Assembly is the best film of Marvel. It's one of Mm. them. Pete, what are you reading? Well, I'm pretty, that's pretty much my thoughts, exactly. I think on a good day, Guardians can actually equip even Avengers, because um, this came in, it was the wildest possible idea. Basically, doing what Avengers took five films to do, get an entire new team together, a team of scumbags and, and killers, really, throw it into a sci-fi um, world which hasn't really been touched on before, and incorporate a CGI raccoon and a tree. <laughs> <laughs> which it sounds like it could have been a complete clusterfuck of a, of a, of a cauldron of mess. 
but it actually turned out through the um, through the lens of James Gunn, who was the auteur, writer, director of it, to become an incredible entry in the series. Mainly because he just gave us a great big elevation of wit, heart, and gusto. I mean, just the attitude of it. And not least helped by the incredible soundtrack as well. If you say Captain America the best score, I think um, it's challenged for me by the soundtrack of Guardians, which is the awesome mix itself has been on repeat on my, on my head and on my iPod for the last year. So, <laughs> 70s rock soundtrack. That soundtrack also has a kind of plot element that works quite well into it. Yes, it it's... emotional crew. Yeah, it's, it's what, yeah, every, every song sort of links into what's going on in the narrative of that moment, or at, least, or at least on some level, which I think is a brilliant idea, um, particularly towards the end. It's not perfect. I mean, I think Lee Pace is quite bland as the main villain of a piece. There's a bit too much space battle stuff at the end, which gets a bit lost in, in, in a mosh. Um, a film called Guardians of the Galaxy yeah, and Space Battles. In, indeed, indeed. But I think I think it's it's a bit result of ships flying around and firing at each other, which hampers the pacing a bit. But we're talking minor there. The vast majority of it is getting this core of complete weirdos and misfits and turning every single one of them into a likable cast, mainly powered by Chris Pratt coming from pretty much left field at this point to become now one of the biggest film stars of the day, much like Robert Downey Jr. did way back in 08. By bringing a sort of hand solo cockiness and and humanity to a part, which anchors the film, and then everyone else sort of um, spins off from that. And um, Vin Diesel is, is a talking tree group. I mean, he could said so many jokes before about Vin Diesel playing a character made of wood, but he's the um, he's probably come out as a breakout character of a whole piece. Even though he only says four wor- uh, five words, I think, aren't there? I am Groot. We are Groot. But somehow he invests so much character into a tree. <laughs> I actually wonder why he can't invest so much character into himself. But um, as I understand it, he made a yeah. point of figuring out what Groot was trying to say with every "I am Groot" yeah. through the whole film, so he could do it in a couple of different. Well, he didn't even do his own sort of alternate language versions of the he same did dialogue every, as well. He did every language. So he said, "He said Ick being Groot and just sweet Groot and various other versions of Groot." But Groot was one of us, everybody. Much as much as like, with Star Wars, which is an easy comparison to make, with R two D two and Chewbacca, we could sort of gather what they're saying, even though they're not mm-hmm. speaking English. You could sort of get that with Groot by the end. At least I thought so. You knew exactly what he was trying to say. Even well, Guardians is a love letter to kind of late seventies, early eighties sci-fi. It's, anyway, it's it's a, it's a space opera in the Marvel universe, which is something that mm-hmm. had never been done for. It's a massive risk. We were talking earlier about Thor being, you know, taking a risk by going into this fantasy area. I think, again, this is a, a big risk again. He puts an even bigger one. And, so the and fact that this, this has paid off, like, because I'd never heard of Guardians of the Galaxy, to be honest, and the fact that Marvel decided, you know what, we've made so much money, let's see where this goes. I think the success of this is why they announced, like, Black Panther and Captain Marvel, like, characters who you wouldn't necessarily have heard of unless you, you know, you read the comics and things. Like, Captain Marvel's, like, my favourite superhero ever, and I always thought Black Widow was going to get a movie well before Captain Marvel ever does. But I think that being announced had a lot to do with the success of Guardians of the Galaxy. They're not necessarily thinking we have to stick to, you know, the ones everyone kind of already knows, or the, like the X-Men and things like that. I know X-Men's completely related to this Marvel universe, but it, it shows Willem to, you know, veer a little lot off mm. course, and it means that the, the, the nerds, essentially, you could see, like, MODOK and people like that, you know, who you would never think when this all started, I'm going to see Ms. Marvel have her own film with fucking Modoc and stuff like that. You would never think it could possibly happen. And not just happen, but like Angelina Jolie's rumoured to wreck Captain Marvel. Like, it's just insane. Like, it's the whole superhero franchise now 
has become this insane monster. It's just taken on a life of its own, and it's brought some legitimacy to the culture that you know we all enjoy. And you know, it it's made it socially acceptable now to say I'm a nerd. Do you know exactly? Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I was going to say actually, you sort of touched on it there, is the cast on Guardians. For you know, I could say a sci-fi film, but it involved a tree and a raccoon, a CJ raccoon. Is it? Some of us point because you've got Glenn Close in it. You've got Benicio del Toro. We've got actors of that capability. Hey, Frank Langella was in the Masters of the Universe movie. Let's well, not forget that. True, but I mean, you, you would you have expected Glenn Close to have been in this film way back, way back when? Probably not. You know, they can get these people in now. These really, really mm. well-known Oscar-winning thespes. It's a confidence of it as well, wasn't it? It's just brimming with confidence. Mm. And that's well, that's what made it work. One of the beauties of the, this film was the soundtrack, yeah. which mm. is just amazing. Um, yeah. And it's, it's kind of sweeped, well, I said a nation, the world probably, um, you know, and bringing them closer to, to some really obscure music as well, but ultimately brilliant. Um, and it's really easy to listen to again and again and again. And yes, yeah, so that's definitely one of the strengths in my book. Not that the film itself wasn't brilliant, but for me, that's what I brought away from it that was unlike any of the other Marvel films. And this ties back into what we were saying earlier about how Iron Man and Hulk and Thor were gradually introducing these more fantastical concepts. We wouldn't have got to a point where we could accept a movie like this had we not had such strong work in the movies leading up to it. But also, yeah. that kind of real-world connective elements of, like, the soundtrack and these really recognisable, so- like, fairly, you know, current, well, recent generational songs, even though it was this big space opera going on and there was explosions and, and planets made out of hollowed-out alien skulls and, and um, whatnot, and then you had David Bowie turning up on the soundtrack, you're kind of like, oh, well, this is just like, what he, this dude's just one of us. He just happens to be having a crazy adventure in space. Who hasn't since... Guardian soundtrack came out, gone dancing down the road to, you know, come and get you off by Redburn. Wanted to keep <laughs> stuff. Yeah. yeah. I, well, I, I have. Yeah. I've got about three. Because he does have that real sort of. It's, it's like Avengers in the sense that it was immediately a little bit iconic in <clears> films <throat> right now. And it, that's why it was, it was one of the most critically acclaimed, actually, and fan loved films of last year. It was my favourite film of last year. Yeah, it was one of mine. It was, it, it was, it was, it's in my top ten. I think it's one of those that people for the Marvel films will always love. But uh, obviously last, the success of that tees up at, at the end of our journey, the end of our podcast journey, the reason we're all here today, to talk about where we currently stand, which is the brand new Avengers Age of Ultron. I was designed to save the world. People would look to the sky and see hope. I'll take that from them first. There's only one path to peace. Their extinction. Strings free. Free from strings. No, 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 no. To start off with, I'm going to go, I'm going to ask you individually, each of you, right, whether you like this. Now, I want a yes or no answer, and then we'll talk about it in general. So I'm going to go through each of you. So, Layden. Yes. Yes. Lynn. Yes. yes. Emma. Yes. <laughs> okay, I'm done. Hell yes. Dan. Yes. 
Oh, I'm so glad because I knew if we didn't like it, Emma was not going to let that one stand. <laughs> I did actually text Lee before and was like, if they say they don't like it, I'm just going to like have a bitch fit and sign off. Okay, I've got to be honest. <laughs> I've got to be honest. I did like it, but nearly as much as I wanted to, or I thought I would. Emma's actual That's words, okay. everybody, were. I'm going to get really pissed off when everyone starts slagging off Age of Ultron. It's awesome. Everyone else is full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay that you didn't like it as much as you thought you were going to because I liked it enough for about 40 people. <laughs> I, I was not prepared on any level, and we all know this because I've been counting down for long enough, to not like this film. It, wasn't, it was not going to happen. I know. Do you know what? It, I went to the cinema and... Like, obviously, I kind of knew sort of what was going to happen in the end, but it just reminded me of why I love film so much. It was this joy of, like, not knowing what was going to happen next. And I was worried I wouldn't be as excited for it on the actual day because it, it, I knew, like, I'd already seen the team together in Avengers Assemble and whatnot. But once I sat down and it started, like, that same just rapture that I felt last time was there again. And it was... I, uh, someone else talk. I just need. Was it that I... first slow motion hero shot when they're fighting the hydrogens yes. in the snow and they all just burst out and you get the the lovely little five shot? The comic book panel. I kind, I kind or, of or... argue that um, that the, that original fight sequence was the strongest fight sequence of the whole film. Yes. Uh, you see, my favorite action great. scene. My favorite action scene is the um, whole chase sequence in Korea with Cap and Black Widow. I've, that's on multiple levels. Mm. It's just incredibly well well directed. Got to sleep. Got to sleep. Got to sleep. Got to sleep. Yeah. Which was just like I'm going after Bruce Banner now. I punched my brother so hard in the arm and went, "Oh my god, the whole bus is coming!" Like I'd be <laughs> Veronica. <laughs> Veronica. Yeah. Yeah. Veronica. I call Veronica. I literally got violent. I was so excited for this scene. My brother was just like, fucking stop punching me. <laughs> and he was like, it's happening. Yeah. It's finally happening. And then my boyfriend kind of leaned over and went, I think the Hulkbuster's coming up. And I was just like, no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> I felt really sorry for my boyfriend during this because he kept like, when he said about no Wakanda, he leaned over and went, that's where Black Panther's from and that's where Vibranium comes from. And I was like, oh, baby, I know. <laughs> Thank you for trying, love. Yeah. I know what you mean. That obviously the Hulkbuster scene was great, and the the cap uh, the cap and Black Widow um, scene was was also good. But obviously that earlier scene was all of the heroes together. Which then you compare it to the final scene of all the heroes together, and that I just almost got a bit seasick. There was just so much going on. The editing wasn't the best. That sometimes there would be characters flying across the screen because it'd been mashed together so much that there was just too much going on that that I, I lost moments. And again, the best thing about this film were the quieter moments. Um, like anything with Hawkeye, surprisingly for me, was brilliant. Um, I went in thinking Hawkeye will probably not do anything in this film. He'll just be bubbling along on the surface, but he almost stole the show in 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 a lot of ways um no. <laughs> and I, I go back Can to actually what i said quite a while ago i said that if they don't if kill it because obviously they kind of said that they're going to kill somebody and i said that if they don't kill off one of the main avengers the only person they can get away with killing off would be black widow in the fact that it would cause the most kind of uh, i don't know what i want to say controversy but it would mean the most to the fans um and i kind of feel that the decision they did go with 
kind of confirmed that. I didn't really honestly care that that character died. See, I thought, like, I was watching with my brother going, well, as soon as Hawk had a family, I was like, well, he's fucking dead, isn't he? That's so did I. So, like, I was like, and, oh, that's but then what then I was classic like, fake They've made mm. it so obvious that yeah. won't. But because they've made it so obvious and we think they won't, they will. Because oh, my brother went, oh, they won't yeah. kill Hawkeye now. And I was like, it's just fucking weed. And of course he yeah. will. Yeah. And when he was doing uh, No to Scarlet Witch and he was like saying, it, when they were on the floating city at the end and he was going on about like, none of this makes sense. Like he's giving a David speech. I was like, this is his. Yeah, exactly. That's why I texted you saying this is this was his. I'm a leaf on the wind bit, and I was expecting a fucking arrow through his head or something. And I kind of held my breath every time he was on the screen. This was like like, no, no, no. It it was definitely like the Walking Dead treatment, where the character that that, that is not seen for almost the whole series gets a whole beginning of the episode, then dies at the end. This is exactly what I thought they were going to do with Hawkeye. Why I knew Hawkeye wouldn't die. Because we know he's in a civil war. Now, this this is my problem, right? Mm. I did enjoy it, I've, but I've got to tell you why I don't think it's a great film and I don't think it's one of Marvel's best at all, right? I've got to tell you this. I'm sorry, Emma. I've got to get this out. Right? I tried. I'm not going to listen. I think I'm going to agree, so... This is the problem I have with this. The fact that we know the next five, six, seven films has damaged Age of Ultron in a big way, Right? I've got a positivist, but carry on. Right, I knew, I, we knew that Hawkeye, I knew Hawkeye was going to be in Civil War. I knew Scarlett Johansson was going to be in Civil War. You know, I knew that Falcon's going to be in Civil War. You know, all these characters that, yes, I, I heard there was going to be a death as well. When, when it was the death that happened, A, like, like you, like, uh, was just said, I, I, I didn't care either because the, we, had, we, didn't, we didn't spend enough time with the character. B, it was the fact that it felt arbitrary. And my problem with this, my biggest problem, is that it feels like the Joss was squeezed out of it a hell of a lot. Now, in the first Avengers, Joss Whedon's he's all over that. His poor prints are all over it. In this, it's only certain points where I believe this was the film that Joss Whedon set out to make. Crucially, all the comedy stuff, which is great, and it works almost all the stuff with Thor's hammer and all that stuff, it works pretty much as good as anything in the first Avengers film. I love that. The final moment of Captain America being cut off. Perfect. Great. Oh, I wanted to yes. punch someone. It's, ju- it's just, it's pure just, it's great. Now, and Ultron, that, well, the reason I loved Ultron so much is because he's pure just Whedon himself. Yeah. Well, yeah. His whole petulant child mixed with a, you know, a psychotic Skynet. He's wonderful, right? And yeah. with a bit of Tony Stark in there, obviously, as well. That, that, sh- that shot that shot of um, Vision picking up Force Hammer was just brilliant. <laughs> so just it was perfect. Their eyes Over, like, so perfect. Oh. Although, I always, I also love... Just passing it to him. And I also love the second bit when he comes back in and then they start discussing the weight of a hammer. It's just that Force yeah. so happy. Yeah. He has a friend yeah. now. It felt like there were, there were too many points where Marvel and Kevin Feige had come in and said, we need this here, we need this here, we need him to be there, we need him to be there. The whole Thor subplot, right, for a start, I don't believe a lot of that was Joss Whedon at all. In fact, a lot of that was cut down, right? And I just, it, it just felt totally arbitrary in order to get the vision about the Infinity Gem. Okay, that all does tie in with Ultron and everything like that. I get that. But it also gives him the vision that's totally teeing up Ragnarok. It was just like, well, the first Avengers didn't need any of this. The first Avengers film had its own story and its own plot, and it seeded things for later, but it didn't so overtly go, oh, right, well, that Civil War's coming, so we've got to set that up, we've got to make sure that happens. Right, Ragnarok's coming, so we've got to make sure that happens. Infinity War. We didn't know about any of that stuff back then. We didn't know that the next Avengers was going to be called Age of Ultron. We didn't know the next Thor was going to be called The Dark World. You know, we know too much, and it unfortunately means that 
the individual film. It's like when it's like when you're a writer and you plan out ten seasons of your show before you've written the first three episodes, right? You don't want to write the first three episodes then because you're so in love with what happens in season nine. This is the problem in that we know too much now. And Marvel, for the first time, I felt like this was things being slotted into place for plot purposes. May I repost? Right, well, can I just just quickly? Oh, I just didn't, and it meant I just could not fall in love with this film, and I had, and it was too. It was it was it was also darker and had less colour in it. It wasn't as exciting or as punchy as Avengers. It felt reheated a lot of it. It wasn't. It just wasn't. It didn't give me that same sense of buzz as the first Avengers film. And I think it had some great things, but I think I had a lot wrong with it. And I think I. I don't know if I will. It will be better second time round. Pete, repost. May I repost? You say that we know what everything that's going. You know, a lot of things that's going to be happening in the future, and that's fair enough. We all do. But I think you have to forget that you're forgetting here that there's a general audience that may mm -hmm. not do. But there's, there's a larger audience out there. There's, I mean, it's it's took a, it, the first one took a billion at the box office. This could well do the same. I don't think everyone who's going to watch it also knows the entire Marvel plan, as a certain set of people do. No. With that, with that in mind, I don't think that the enjoyment of the film in and of itself would have been hampered for all these people who don't know what's going on, because I don't think there's so much that suddenly six times like this has nothing to do with anything. I'm completely confused because even the bits like you say, the bit where Ford dips himself in a swimming pool just to you know, get his top off of the ladies, also ties in a little bit later on because that does lead to the creation of the vision. So people might not be totally lost by it. So I don't think there's too much that. I think that's a case where we can't divide ourselves from what we already know, from what the audience at large might not know. That's a fair so, yeah. fair. I do feel like there were pieces being moved into place too much. Mm. Um, yeah. As much as I like Anthony Mackie, I just I don't really know why he was there. And the, the, the same with um, War Machine as well. Uh, I just felt that those characters, and particularly the four subplot, the four subplot for me was so glaringly obvious mm. that it kind of got in the way and in the end you kind of lost bits with the Hulk where he ends up obviously oh, I don't really want to spoil it but I'm going to anyway um, where he exits as it were and you lose a lot of his reasoning as to why I think because you lose certain extra scenes that perhaps could have been allocated to him that, that explains his reasoning for doing what he ends up doing. The Hulk's a funny one in this because he kind of in a way I can't think of any one Hulk moment like he had in Avengers, like the Hulk smash or any of the other cool or the puny god or the other bits that he had that were just these great moments. But overall, the Hulk banner plot as it goes throughout the film is a really strong, consistent one. So it kind mm. of balances it, out rather than being a couple like four or five moments dotted throughout. It's one really strong through line yeah. that goes. So you went on a big emotional journey in this. Yes, one, I, think. I, could, I could make a strong case that Mark Ruffalo is the MVP of Age of Ultron because he did you know, so I, much. I agree. I know he said a couple of months ago in an interview how he was a showcase in this film. How the Hulk's are scared of Bruce Banner as Bruce Banner mm. is of the Hulk, and I think to a certain extent he did achieve that. I mean, it seems to me, do you know, when um, Black Widow was singing him a lullaby. He kind of seemed like you got this sense that the Hulk was kind of irritated. And during the Hulkbuster fight, when Iron Man mentions Bruce Banner and he starts screaming, and Iron Man goes, "Oh yeah, right, don't mention Puny Banner." Like mm. <laughs> the Hulk is scared of Bruce Banner because Bruce Banner is actively trying to control him and you know take basically kill him because they're, they're almost like they're like two 
people, aren't they? The two different people, mm. two different personalities in one body. Whereas the Bruce Banner is scared of the Hulk because he knows what the Hulk can do. So, and I do agree. I do agree with what you just said. I think Mark Ruffalo is the, probably the best, the best actor in in this film. Mm. But can we talk about Ultron? Because I thought Ultron was scary as fuck. Yeah, he was. Like Freddie has asked to go see Freddie's asked to go see this film and I've said no because of Ultron because I think he would be far too scared that first scene where he showed up and he's like yeah. dragging his leg and the voice and oh it was Wait. on I was like this is this is too this is scary kind yeah See, I, I, I saw this before we had um, any any showings of this, so I kind I, of knew the tone it was going to. And there, were, uh, yeah. there have been lots of kids that have come to see this. I'm like, they are too young. Yeah. In the first opening minutes, there's probably one of the worst swear words. <laughs> said language. But yeah, Ultron particularly is very scary, and we have had lots of kids young children leave because it's too scary and it, it is it is you, you kind of said to me about the fact that there was not a lot of color in there and it was a lot darker i think than the avengers and um a lot of phase one and i think that's kind of true of phase two phase two was a lot darker a lot more serious but it worked in the solo films um you know uh, particularly in Iron Man 3 and particularly in, in Winter Soldier and didn't work so much in this because it, it just it wasn't quite as uh, exciting I guess um, and colourful and as we've kind of already plainly said not enough Joss in it to, to make it what Avengers was I liked it I'd say I didn't like it as much as I thought I would I thought there's a bit of an issue with pacing at times um, mm. I want to call back to something I said about two hours ago about the villain of the first Avengers having an extra film to establish himself Ultron seemed to I quite like the pace that Ultron was there and then, but then he suddenly went from being you are all puppets to like wanting to kill every single person it just seemed to happen that was the greatest impression of Ultron ever <laughs> you are all puppets you are all puppets <laughs> We miss a trick. We miss a trick having James Spader. We should have had all of them to do a Mancunian accent. Yeah, while we're busy alienating one of our audience. You know, you know what I mean. You know what? It's basically all all the Tony Stark machines going on strike. Miners, because we're treating like robots. You're comparing Ultron's attack to the miners' strike. We're treating like robots. Brilliant. And in an election year as well. Waven needs to be cast as Arthur Scargill stat. Waven <laughs> needs to stop doing that accent immediately. <laughs> we know what mean, Kirk. I may sound like a, a, a doubting Thomas, but I did really enjoy it. I really did. Mm. And I think it, it's still it's still a perfectly good film. And I, I hope I, I fall in love with it more, as you guys have done, in following, you know, seeing it again. Mm. But I think the general consensus for most people is it's not as good as the first Avengers, but it's still great. And Yeah. Yeah. And that's really good because it tees up the films to come uh, in a big way. Obviously, you know the ne- next up is Ant Man, which uh, we'll, we will be reviewing later in the summer on uh, Black Hole Cinema, and then uh, of course it all carries on with Civil War next year. So um, next March, I believe, or April. So it's uh, it's gonna it's just the beginning, really, in many ways. This may be the end of Phase Two, but this is uh, this is just the start. Unless the superhero bubble bursts, but I, I hope it doesn't. I hope it carries on. Do we think it will? Do we think we're close to a point now of oversaturation? 
Not, Not yet, yet but we will do. I think all the Eventually. DC movies are going to kill it off, personally. Because I don't think they're going to have the... They're not going to have the same level of care of attention. They're not going to be as much fun. There's just going to be things that aren't aren't as right or aren't as well put together about them. And I just think the the sheer volume of them that are going to be coming out over the next five or six years, that's what's going to really... The public aren't going to have the patience to sit through all these things. But we're still going to be... Have them shoved down our throats some attempt Aquaman. movies for the next six years, whether we like it or not. Exactly. Subject to Aquaman. So. Yeah, and the second one of them doesn't do well, then they're just going to, in a panic, cancel a load of them, as we saw happen with the whole Spider-Man franchise that was being set up. I think the MCU is bulletproof, at least until Infinity War. But uh, well, then, who knows? Well, they think... take some more risks though in the Phase Three because think about it. There are a few films. I mean, Spider-Man will be mega. I think that will probably be the biggest hitter actually. But then. You've got, depending on who they cast as well, but I think then you've got, you know, films that are a bit unknown quantities. You've got, like, Black Panther. You've got Doctor Strange. These are characters who aren't... Like Doctor, Man, Doctor Strange. Alone, you know? Doctor Strange played by Benedict Cumberbatch. So that probably wants to set up. That, mm. will, that will help that in a big way. And I think that's why they've got such a well-known actor to play Doctor Strange, because he's a very, very tricky part that's going to be in a very, very tricky corner of the Marvel version. Again, that'll probably like Thor and Guardians introducing yeah. into a new area of the universe again. But they've got to get that tonally right. They've got to, they've got to, like Guardians got it spot on tonally. That's going to be a tricky beast. So they, they're, they're, going to, they're going to have to take... But Marvel, in fairness, even though people accuse them of being samey, they, they aren't afraid of taking risks and throwing the dice a little bit. So, you know, they, they'll do that again in Phase 3. They've got a weight of, you know, success behind them. So I don't see why they won't carry on, you know, doing well going forward. But they've just got to hope like, like you guys have said that the other superhero franchises around them don't collapse because if they do then the pressure's going to be on Marvel even more one sense that I got from the end of Age of Ultron um, is that that moment where we introduce you know our recruits for who's potentially going to be part of the team going forward there was a bit of a hint of sadness that like oh you know we've we've seen the last of the team that we've you know become so attached to over the next five or six years are we going to fall in love with the people that because the Avengers obviously have had a rotating membership yeah. of dozens of different superheroes over the years, but we've gotten so used to these guys now that it, now that some of them aren't potentially going to be there anymore, you know, think, is it like oh this this is it now? It's not going to be as good again because it's not going to have those same people in it, or I, are the I, new people that come along going to be as good? And are we going to fall in love with them just as hard? I think if you believe that they're not going to come back for Infinity War, I think we're, we're pretty much all kidding ourselves. Yeah, but mm. I think. I mean, there's enough fan favourites in there. I know Vision has automatically become a bit of a fan favourite, hasn't he, sir? Well, Peter's kind of said it twice. Infinity War, almost up until that point, is, is mm. bulletproof. And the fact is, is that you, you know Thor will probably be back for that. Um, and I don't, know whether, yeah. I don't know whether both Iron Man and Captain America will be, but I suspect one of them will definitely be there. Um, you'd, you'd lean more towards Captain America, I think. Because ultimately, you can't see some of the um, replacements, as it were. You can't see War Machine <laughs> fighting Thanos, for example. Um, and you, know, you, you certainly can't see the, the poor old human uh, Falcon fighting the Thanos. Human Falcon. <laughs> yes. Well, it's like he is, he's like a weaker version of, you know, of, well, he, both him and War Machine are kind of weaker versions of, of what we've already got. Um, whereas, obviously, we know the vision is is pretty powerful, and Scarlet Witch has shown she can be pretty powerful. Um, so they can be additions to our team. Um, but those two, I think, are almost kind of gone in there as cannon fodder. 
Yeah, I just hope they're not setting up a teenage job. It is to get murdered in part one so that the other guys can come back in part two and avenge well, them. I, w- I, I almost wouldn't be surprised if Falcon dies in Civil War <laughs> and oh, um, War Machine dies Falcon. at the end of Infinity War. <laughs> as long as nothing happens to Scarlet Witch, I'll be just fine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be very surprised if Rodney Downey Jr. isn't in Infinity War. Mm, you know, yeah. I'd be amazed. Mm. I think he will be. I think, like you say, I think they'll all be back. Um, for a final, and it will be the last one, I think, for people like Chris Evans, Chris Hemsworth, Robert Downey Jr., mm. um, Sam Jackson. You know, yeah, yeah, I think possible. Well, yeah, I think it will be the last one for a lot of them. I think that will be it. Whether they'll kill them off or whatever, I don't know. But or they'll retire them. But I think then by then they'll have worked up as a lot of other characters that they can hope that hopefully will have built up and be as beloved. You know, Doctor Strange, Black Panther, Spider Man. They'll all be loved enough so they can carry on into Phase 4 with a whole new ro- roster and a whole new set of films and, and everything like that. But it's it's interesting because this is where it gets risky. This is where it really does get risky. Mm-hmm. It will be fascinating to revisit this, to do, a, to do a podcast for Infinity War in four years, three or four years, and see how, how, di- how different the landscape looks. So shall we, shall we put that in our diaries now? Should we should we have as many um, panelists as there are Avengers? Well, yeah, we need more. We'll get everyone on for that. We'll have twelve of us. <laughs> I was going to say we need to quadruple our fu- fan base here, don't we? Should we go enough Avengers? We'll get twelve people on, and we're going to kill off several of them in the first half. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll be left with like four. Um, but yeah, that uh, leads me to uh, to officially pull down the curtain for uh, for this episode. This is the biggest black hole cinema yet. It's the longest. I will probably spend the next five weeks editing. So, um, But thank you all for uh, sticking with it. We've gone on a bit later than we hoped, but thank you for sticking with it. And um, it just leaves me to say uh, goodbye, Matt Laven. Goodbye, Matt Laven. <laughs> goodbye, Dan Taylor. Goodbye, Dan Taylor. <laughs> goodbye, Emma Platt. Chat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, has to goodbye, be unique. Goodbye, Pete D. Gaskell. And goodbye from you. And finally, goodbye, Mr. Lee Crimes. Good night and good luck. We'll see you in phase three. Bye, guys. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.